Captain. Our computer is picking up a strange signal. I don't want any baloney, magic tricks, or psychological mumbo jumbo. Errors in time and space. Greetings, Liminards! Broadcasting to you from a location outside of time and space. This is Liminal Unlimited. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Bong. Uh, so I'm Kyle Thatcher. I'm Jennifer Thatcher. And this is Liminal Unlimited, as we've already stated. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> We're a little tired. We're a little tired, admittedly. We're a little tired. Uh, but this is going to be a good episode. I'm excited about this episode because on this episode we are talking about what? Near-death experiences. Ooh. And um, before we uh, get into the meat and potatoes of near-death experiences, let's just talk about the fact that the internet seems conflicted as to what they think near-death experiences are. Conflicted is one word. So what... Wrong is another word <laughs> that I would use. So, in general, uh, as opposed to, you know, just almost dying, <laughs> which which is what about uh, three quarters of the internet seems to believe near-death experiences are. Uh, uh, what, what in, just in a short general synopsis, what is an actual near-death experience? So as opposed to someone, you know, like, oh my gosh, I almost got into a car accident today, but I'm fine. <laughs> this is someone who was actually seriously injured, was clinically dead or very close to it and had some sort of experience Either an out-of-body experience or something that they... An afterlife experience. Yeah, an afterlife experience. Um, something that, you know, they really shouldn't have been experiencing considering the state that they were in. Yeah, this this isn't... I had pneumonia and went to the hospital and, guys, I almost died. But then they gave me antibiotics and I was okay. Not that a near-death experience. That's not a near-death experience. <laughs> That's what in the in the business we would call a near miss. <laughs> Death nearly missed you. <laughs> Might have been near death, yeah. but yeah, didn't experience. You that. almost got got, <laughs> but you didn't, and so your experience, as profound as it may have been for you, does not rank <laughs> in in what we're talking about today. Um. So, near-death experiences. Yes, we're talking about um, at some type of afterlife, some type of confirmation that the consciousness or soul, whichever you choose, how you choose to view it, survives after death. And it's like you get a little, a little peek, a little window into that other world, that other existence. The curtain opens for a minute, and you get to see the great and powerful Oz pulling all the levers, flipping all the switches. Maybe you see some machine elves. There's no machine elves. <laughs> or, you, or you meet angels, or you meet your dead relatives, and then you get to go back to Kansas, right? 
Something like that, yes. <laughs> That's the way I choose to think of it. So, um, do you? I have I have listed the common elements of a near death experience. Should we Should we go through that list first? Well, we, I was going to get to that when we get to Raymond Moody. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, we we did not we did not talk about wh- no, we how. No, don't talk. <laughs> We Talking did, is overrated. We did a very general uh, kind of powwow over what we were going to cover, and um, so well, okay. Let well, what? How would you like to start? What do you want to talk about first? All right. So, well, reports of near-death experiences go back to ancient times, Egyptian texts, Greek texts, even um, ancient. Jewish texts, the Talmud talk about, um, and in those cases, things like the soul hovering over the body, um, a, a life review, uh, things like that. Because in like Egyptian, like they talk about the your ka, mm-hmm. and your ka, you know, goes to the other world, and and you know, it's it's um, in in cases like that, in myth, mythological uh, sources. It, it's sort of like a a ritualistic journey, mm-hmm. right? Right. So um, Wikipedia actually sums it up very nicely. So a near-death experience is a profound personal experience associated with death or impending death, which researchers claim share similar characteristics. When positive, such experiences may encompass a variety of sensations, including detachment from the body, feelings of levitation, total serenity, security, warmth, the experience of absolute dissolution, and the presence of a light. When negative, such experiences may include sensations of anguish, distress, a void, devastation, and vast emptiness. People often report seeing hellish places and things like their own rendition of, quote, the devil. Explanations for NDEs vary from scientific to religious. Neuroscience research hypothesizes that an NDE is a subjective phenomenon resulting from, quote, disturbed bodily multisensory integration. An imbalance of the fluids. Yes, that occurs during life-threatening events. Some transcendental and religious beliefs about an afterlife include descriptions similar to NDEs. In the U.S., an estimated 9 million people have reported an NDE, according to a 2011 study, I guess it's a lot more now then, in the Annals of New York Academy of Sciences. Most of these near-death experiences result from serious injury that affects the body or brain. Where where are the annals? (sighs) Annals, dear. Where are the annals? It's in New York. <laughs> the, if I want to see the annals, I have to go to New York, huh? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Anywho, so the oldest medical description of a near-death experience was around 1740 by a French physician named Pierre-Jean Dumontchot. <laughs> in his Anecdote de Médecine. This guy looked dead. <laughs> <laughs> and he reports um, a tale of the famous apothecary in Paris uh, who um, fell unconscious after having a fever and getting some bloodletting done. And he reported seeing a light so bright and pure he thought he must have been in heaven. Um, this guy, this guy, he come back from dead. <laughs> and he's telling me he saw light and he felt pure love. And I was like, hey, just go get a glass of wine. <laughs> You're being silly. <laughs> and the French term experience de mort imminente, experience of imminent, imminent death, 
was proposed by French psychologist and epistemologist Victor Egger as a result of discussions in the 1890s among philosophers and psychologists concerning climbers' stories of the panoramic life review during falls. Um, oh, so like, are they saying they fell? Yeah. And, and in the moments as they were falling, their life flashed before their eyes. Yeah, so Albert Heim was a professor of geology in uh, Switzerland, and he experienced a fall. He was, a, you know, liked to go in the mountains and study geology. He was a climber. He had a fall and a near-death experience. And then that caused him to research other climbers' stories, and they all reported uh, sort of similar things. Um, most, like, the most common things were the feeling of time expanding or, like, slowing down as they were falling, um, their thoughts being very clear and, like, crystal clear, and um, a life review type of thing. So, let's see. Here is his experience. He uh, wrote a paper in 1892, translated to Remarks on Fatal Falls, which he presented at the Swiss Alpine Club. So he says, what I felt in five to ten seconds could not be described in ten times that length of time. So five to ten seconds, he fell. All my thoughts and ideas were coherent and very clear and in no way susceptible as are dreams to obliteration. First of all, I took in the possibilities of my fate and said to myself, the crag point over which I will soon be thrown evidently falls off below me as a steep wall since I have not been able to see the ground at the base of it. It matters a great deal whether or not snow is still lying at the base of the cliff wall. If this is the case, the snow will have melted from the wall and formed a border around the base. If I fall on the border of snow, I may come out of this with my life. But if there is no more snow down there, I am certain to fall on rubble. And at this velocity, death will be quite inevitable. If, when I strike, I am not dead or unconscious, I must instantly seize my small flask of spirits of vinegar and put some drops from it on my tongue. I do not want to let go of my alpenstock. Perhaps it can still be of use to me. Hence, I kept it tightly in my hand. I thought of taking off my glasses and throwing them away so that splinters from them might not injure my eyes, but I was so thrown and swung about that I could not muster the power to move my hands for this purpose. A set of thoughts and ideas then ensued concerning those left behind. I said to myself that upon landing below I ought, what, I ought indifferent to whether or not I were seriously injured, to call immediately out to my companions out of affection for them to say, I'm all right. Then my brother and three friends could sufficiently recover from their shock so as to accomplish the fairly difficult descent to me. My next thought was that I would not be able to give my beginning university lecture that had been announced for f five days earlier, five days later. I considered how the news of my death would arrive for my loved ones, and I consoled them in my thoughts. Then I saw my whole past life take place in many images, as though on a stage at some distance from me. I saw myself as the chief character in the performance. Everything was transfigured as though by a heavenly light, and everything was beautiful without grief, without anxiety, and without pain. The memory of very tragic experiences I had had was clear, but not saddening. I can't talk today. <laughs> was clear, but not saddening. I felt no conflict or strife. Conflict had been transmuted into love. Elevated and harmonious thoughts dominated and united the individual images, and like magnificent music, a divine calm swept through my soul. I became ever more surrounded by a splendid blue heaven with delicate roseate and violet cloudlets. I swept into it painlessly and softly, and I saw that now I was falling freely through the air, and that under me a snowfield lay waiting. Objective observations, thoughts, and subjective feelings were simultaneous. Then I heard a dull thud, and my fall was over. 
My, so my, my Blue Heaven. <laughs> I know. That's a Steve Martin movie. <laughs> so he thought all of that as he was falling in five to ten seconds. And, yeah, interesting. So that, uh, you know, spurred him to research the issue, talk to other climbers who, you know, reported very similar things. Now, a very interesting thing. Albert Heim was one of Albert Einstein's professors. Oh. And Albert Einstein took a lot of his lectures, which were not really related to his studies, but he enjoyed them. And in later years, he wrote a letter to Professor Heim saying that his lectures were magical. And So he probably some... would have heard this story about the slowing of time. And... Uh-huh. So some have theorized that his theory of relativity could have been inspired by... Professor Heim and his fall and the idea of time and space not being fixed and being relative. Um, yeah, which I thought was really fascinating. Now, of course, we we do know now that when you get in a situation where you get like um, when your adrenaline level goes up and like you mm-hmm. get scared and everything, your brain also floods with dopamine, which dopamine has the can have the effect of stretching time Mm -hmm. so not to say that it's not you know cool and doesn't you know factor in but for any naysayers out there because i know that's the immediate thing like i heard once and (laughs) i was watching the news and they were talking or i was on the history channel and they were talking about dopamine slowing down your brain function (laughs) you know yes that's an established thing you know however um it's it's pretty amazing that that the dopamine could be released and affect it might affect your perception of time, mm-hmm. but it's not like it speeds up your brain activity. Right. So how does your brain activity get that amplified to where you're literally racing through thoughts and then racing through a catalog of memories mm-hmm. in you know a period of seconds that you're in free fall. Right. You know, um, I, I'm not so certain that dopamine. I don't you know, think that fully explains it. Dopamine might up your reaction time. That's why people describe and they, they get in those situations where, like, the car jumped the curb and was coming at me. And it's like everything slowed down and I, and I, I could see, you know, which way to move and mm-hmm. things like that. It's more about your reaction times as opposed to, you know, your your brain function this the speed of your thoughts you know right and uh, stephen hawking in 1999 said einstein's theory required abandoning the idea that there is a universal quality quantity called time that all clocks measure instead everyone would have his own personal time the clocks of two people would agree if they were at rest with respect to each other but not if they were moving that's like us i know we're always on thatcher time oh yeah thatcher time is a real thing (laughs) Always late. Always. So, uh, fast forward. Um, the the experience, or the you know, phenomenon of near death experiences started to really become reported more and more in like the 1950s, 60s, when resuscitation technology became a lot better and more people were surviving things like heart attacks. Um, and so there was Professor Raymond Moody Jr. He's American philosopher, psychiatrist, physician, and author. Um, 
he wrote a book called Life After Life in 1975. That sounds like an 80s sitcom. Life After Life. <laughs> like, 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 it's sort of like a, a spinoff of the Golden Girls. Yeah. It's like about retirees. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, um, and so that book was published in 1975, and he kind of coined the term near-death experience. It had been used before, but he kind of made it encompass, you know, all of these experiences. Um, and yes, there are a certain list of criteria that make up most of the experiences. Not all of the criteria need to be met, but do you want to talk about what those are? Sure. And I don't know if these are specifically, you know, Raymond Moody's criteria. I, I know that I found a website uh, discussing it and they, and they kind of outlined uh, 10 common elements of a near-death experience. And... Um, and it's not that you have to have all of these present to qualify as a near-death experience. It's just these are what they, these are the common elements that they hear in almost every story, even if there are variations on the theme. Um, so the first, first and foremost, out-of-body uh, experience, disassociation. You, you leave your body and you observe your body you know, from above, and you see the room full of people. Many people report the doctors working on them. Um, you know, I saw them trying to save my life. A lot of them can report back what the doctor said or what someone in another room said. Yeah, I read one where it was, um, uh, and and I, I yeah, I read one where it was. Uh, this person was saying that um, they came back and they were able to tell a nurse where she left an item. Mm-hmm. Like what card it was on, um, which she couldn't have known uh, otherwise. It's not something that you she would have heard, you know, being unconscious. Um, she would have had to have seen it, and e even even to the extent of people leaving ro the room, you know, like actually leaving and wandering further than that um, before other things happen. The second element would be accurate visual perception, which goes into what we were. Um, talk just talking about about them seeing specific people in the room seeing specific objects um, and that also falls in line with um, one of the things that uh, people point to to validate the experience is the fact that there are reports of people who are blind biologically blind and yet they were able um one woman reported being able to see... Uh, she, she told the doctor where his pen went. He couldn't find his pen. And she said, oh, it's over by the window. And he wanted to know how she knew it could be over there. And she said, well, I saw it fall out of your pocket and roll across the floor while I was standing by the window watching you huh. resuscitate me. Um, the third element would be a similar accurate auditory perception. You heard specific uh, pieces of conversation, specific words being said, etc. The next would be uh, a feeling of peace or painlessness. The fifth one would be uh, an encounter with a light phenomena of some kind. Um, you know, some people see the bright light you know, kind of the classic, the bright light. Other people have actually reported more like orb-like lights appearing in the room with them, um, as if they were possibly, uh, some people say, oh, I, I, it felt like they were other 
beings, other people coming to, to greet me. Um, the Life Review is uh, another one. Uh, existing in another place or world. The fact that you actually leave this plane of existence and go somewhere else that is definitely uh, not here. You have a, a clear understanding that you're not in the material world anymore. Um, encountering other beings or loved ones. The Tunnel. That's the cl one of the classic ones. And um, also, some people report having a precognition or even clairvoyance sometimes during these experiences. So it's as if they somehow know they come back and whatever they've experienced or tapped into in that other place, they know certain things that are going to happen very soon after they come back. Hmm. Or they've seen things in other areas of the building or whatever they've seen things that they and observed things that they could not possibly have otherwise observed it's like they can see it in their mind clearly right um so yeah i have a few more oh okay your list is incomplete <laughs> as I'm disappointed as are we all <laughs> <laughs> so uh sense or awareness of being dead is one like it's not, you're not like, where am I? Like, people are aware that, oh, I died. Whoa. Whoa. I'm dead. <laughs> uh, rapid movement toward and or sudden immersion in a powerful light or being of light, which communicates telepathically with the person. Um, an intense feeling of unconditional love and acceptance. Experiencing euphoric environments. Um, approaching a border or a decision by oneself or others to return to one's body. Often accompanied by a reluctance to return. And then uh, suddenly finding oneself back in one's body. Okay. So in 1975, uh, Dr. Raymond Moody conducted a study on about 150 patients who all claimed to have witnessed uh, an NDE and concluded that such an experience has nine steps. First is sudden peace and relief from pain. Perception of a relaxing sound or otherworldly music consciousness or spirit ascending above the person's body and remotely viewing the attempts at resuscitation from the ceiling the person's spirit leaving the earthly realm and ascending rapidly through a tunnel of light in a universe of darkness arriving at a brilliant heavenly place being met by people of the light who are usually deceased friends and family in a joyous reunion meeting with a deity that is often perceived as their religious culture would have perceived them or as an intense mass emitting pure love and light in the presence of the deity, the person undergoes an instantaneous life review and understands how all the good and bad they have done has affected them and others. The person returns to their earthly body and life because either they are told it is not their time to die or they are given a choice and they return for the benefit of their family and loved ones. Moody also explained how not every NDE will have each and every one of these steps and how it could be different for every single experience. Um... Due to the potential confusion or shock attributed to those who experience near-death experiences, it is important to treat them in a calm and understanding way right after their return from the afterlife. Oh my god, you died! <laughs> holy was, shit! Holy shit! It was <laughs> freaky as hell! You were like dead! You were like so dead! What did you see? What did you see, dude? <laughs> so that's not the way to do it. 
No, uh, Dr. Moody describes the correct approach to an NDE patient is to ask, listen, validate, educate, and refer. Yo, did you know you were dead? (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) I almost died looking at you dead. (laughs) Jeez. Um... And then NDs are associated with changes in personality and outlook on life. Um, so among these changes could be a greater appreciation for life, higher self-esteem, greater compassion for others, less concern for acquiring material wealth, a heightened sense of purpose and self-understanding, desire to learn, elevated spirituality, greater ecological sensitivity and planetary concern, a feeling of being more intuitive, no longer worrying about death and claiming to have witnessed an afterlife. And a lot of people actually become very depressed because they don't want to be here and they want to go back yeah, they, to they were happier there yeah that place and some people you know even try to go back which is kind of crazy but yeah kind of yeah, makes sense too not 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 uh not advisable yeah not advisable whatsoever um so yeah so some of what i found you know they talk about i mentioned the ways uh to validate uh, near-death experiences, um, you know, you ask them about uh, observations, if there are any observations of uh, events that they have that should have been outside of their knowledge, um, if their experiences, uh, uh, if the experiencer has a lack of visual or auditory impairments, you know, if they were, if they were, you know, partially deaf, you know, but yet somehow they managed to hear an entire conversation clearly, um, and also, um, one uh, point of validation would be sometimes people come back and now all of a sudden they know something about someone who predeceased them, you know, a dead relative or someone, dead relative or friend, and all of a sudden they know something about that individual that they should not know, um, something that... Um, that they, they couldn't possibly have discovered on their own prior to this experience happening. Um, there's also, I found, um, the guy named Dr. Bruce Grayson came up with uh, something called the Grayson Scale, which uh, some people who study uh, Lucy... Good night, Lucy. <laughs> Um, (laughs) again, our dogs, wonderful pugs, they snore away while we do this. Um, Dr. Bruce Grayson, uh, some people use, uh, this Grayson scale that he developed to rate the intensity of near-death experiences. Um, and there's 16 points of, um, experience that each one, uh, can either get a score from zero to two. Your max score for the whole thing could be 32. Um, He only believes that a a score of 7 or higher actually should classify as a true near-death experience. So you have to, uh, when you add up all of your answers, you should at least have a 7 for it to really be a near-death experience. How he got to that, I, I don't know. I didn't really look up the, you know, what the questionnaire would be. Um, but they, people who have studied it say that the average score on near-death experiences is usually about a 15. Hmm. 
Now you hear a lot of page flipping here as I go through this stuff. But so that's uh, that's my little tidbit of uh, the history and the study of it. Very good. So, um, so let's just talk in general about near death experiences, honey. Do you? Uh, let's go from. Do you believe that these are even possible? I do. I do. I think it's interesting that most of them are so similar. I mean, there are some differences, but, you know, they have similar elements and it's cross cultures, you know, ages, whether you're raised religiously or not. You know, it's interesting that the same sort of thing happens to these people. And also, you know, if it was just a physiological function of the brain shutting down or sheltering you from the scary experience, why doesn't everyone who has a heart attack and survive experience this? Right. You know, it's only a small percentage of people who are resuscitated that have these experiences. You think if it was a biological function, like everybody would experience it. So yeah. I definitely think there's something to it. I like like to believe there's something to it, and it's not just your brain playing tricks on you. But uh, but then there are also negative experiences too, and I don't like thinking about those. And those are not real, if you ask me, <laughs> because they're scary. And well, I yeah, don't I like mean, that. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm kind of uh, in in somewhat the same vein. You know, I I tend to because of the things that I think about and believe about the the realm of um you know f- uh, physics you know not even necessarily i i have you know re- some religious belief but um you know also just the idea of like as we begin to understand more and more um the the fact that science doesn't really understand even consciousness fully mm-hmm. yet it's like okay if you don't even understand consciousness how it works why it's there what where it is you know right then um i i don't understand how um people can be so certain that consciousness doesn't exist somewhere outside of the the body and the classic answer that you'll always get is well we've seen no evidence of that it's like well okay but you didn't you know you didn't see evidence science is riddled with you know, things that you didn't see any evidence of it, and then there it was. Mm-hmm. You see evidence that this person is brain dead and has right. been for several minutes. And yet somehow and yet... is reporting an experience. Right. How does know? that make sense? Um, so to kind of get that, clear that out of the way maybe a little bit is, uh, I'd like to talk just a little bit about uh, the concept of consciousness. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that first. And then um, talk about, you know, kind of the people who want to kind of debunk it as being just a chemical thing. And maybe we can discuss that a little bit. Um, and then we're going to read some near-death experience stories. Right. Because those right. are cool. Then we're going to get to the, the good stuff. The, the stuff you've been, you've been waiting for. Um, but when it comes to consciousness, uh, as I said, um, if you try to look up there, it's kind of hilarious. There's... 20 million books written about consciousness. But most of the stuff, most of the study of consciousness has only really uh, been written about like human experience, like the experience of consciousness. 
But yet, if you get down, if you bore down into it, and you try to find out, like, okay, well, where does consciousness reside? Well, they don't know. Okay, what is what is consciousness made of? They don't know. Some some people love to. I, I get that sometimes. Some people are like, well, it's chemical reactions and electrical reactions in your brain, and it's like, but that doesn't that really doesn't actually explain what makes me me. You know what I mean? The idea that I, that I have this consciousness that I'm I'm self aware, um, that I'm I recognize myself as an individual, you know, separate from other things. You can say, okay, you got like a you know prefrontal cortex and all. You know, you get into all the the biology of it, but it's like, okay, but what what makes me me and not somebody else? You know, how can you take two people? who have the exact same experiences in their lives, exactly the same. And you end up with two very different people. You know, um, that that has to do with who you are as a person, you know, and your consciousness and the way you look at the world and the way you view the world. Um, that there's something ephemeral that, that happens there and they still haven't pinned it down. And I'm really excited because one of the best theories, well, I should say my favorite theory on this is one that's just come up where now some, some theoretical physicists have decided to like dip their toes into this debate, probably, you know, ill-advised, you know, because I mean, this is such a, um, people get kind of crazy about when you start talking about consciousness well that means you're talking about their soul and where their soul goes when they die and we all know where they go if they don't believe in this thing or that thing and and i'm gonna make sure they get to that other place you know and all this kind of stuff and so some some quantum uh theorists have posited that consciousness is actually a quantum field. That the thing that makes you, you, exists in a quantum field around and within your brain. And now, what evidence do they have for this? Not much. It's slim right now. But it's a very interesting theory that I think could lead to some interesting hypotheses and they believe that that this quantum field that surrounds your brain is feeding you information it's sort of a a bit of a um kind of a filter a conduit and that it's connected to an extension of your consciousness that exists somewhere else um, and that, that, the, there's, that basically through, they, they initially kind of said quantum entanglement, but now they think that it's more like, um, they would describe it as, uh, more of a quantum wave resonance, they call it. Don't ask me what that exactly means. <laughs> um. So like your higher self? Yeah, that it basically, it's like this, this, uh, part of the field in this other place because it has the same particle wave signature as the field that's around your brain, 
they're on the same wavelength and then like through quantum tunneling they're communicating and um there is there is a guy a, a dr dirk meyer at the university of groningen in the netherlands um, who is one of the proponents of this theory and so he believes that this field's connected to a different dimension of existence uh, via uh, quantum entanglement or better yet quantum wave resonance that's transmitting information to the material brain at high speed um, because and he, the, he came up with this because in neuroscience there's something referred to as the binding problem. Uh, the binding problem is that different parts of the brain control different processes biologically. But research shows that information comes together and interacts in the brain quicker than our understanding of neurotransmission can explain. So it's sort of like parts of your brain communicate with each other and neuroscientists have a hard time explaining how those interactions happen so quickly that that the the meat and potatoes of your brain should not be able to do it that fast and they can't explain it yet and they don't seem to be getting anywhere closer to explaining it and so this quantum physicist this theorist posited well what if there was something else going on at a subatomic level here that was allowing your brain to receive information that was processed somewhere else at high speed and the transmissions are happening at the speed of thought and that's how you all of a sudden in those moments car jumps the curb and you know exactly which way to jump Mm -hmm. or the ball's flying at your head and that that quick reaction that your brain shouldn't necessarily be able to to make maybe according to neuroscience bang and you catch that ball but you only ever saw it out, just out of the corner of your eye um so this would go some way to try to explain that and this then falls in line with, you might be saying, okay, Kyle, you've explained this whole thing to us. We're all falling asleep. Uh, Jenny, Jenny, <laughs> wake up. Um, so then the theory would be that if the field around your brain through quantum entanglement was connected to this other field somewhere else, when you die, that field that's around your brain disappears but that information of who you are isn't gone it still exists in that other place where that other field is still in existence and because it's connected through this quantum wave resonance or entanglement or whatever that that's why when you're dead for a certain amount of time people who we hear stories of people who were dead for longer, much longer than they normally would expect someone to come back from death and still have semblance of their personality or mm -hmm. who they are. And yet these people come back and they're the same people they were when they died. 
Right. It's not like your brain reboots. It's not like, you know, even when there's been some cell death, um, they come back and they're still them. These physicists, these theorists would posit that it's because that thing that makes you you still exists in that other place. And once the electro, really electrical uh, reactions are kick-started again in the brain, that quantum field reactivates because it literally just has to download the information from the other place. And you're still you. Even though you've had some bit of brain damage or other issue. But you're still you. Right. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, I really love that uh, that idea. And for me, that's a way to look at it. To think, well, if, then of course we go someplace else. If that's possible, even even remotely possible... Um, then that means, well, yeah, of course we would go someplace else. And maybe that someplace else is actually where, who we are, where we're from, Mm -hmm. you know, and for the people out there that, you know, aren't comfortable with, you know, a wooey woo afterlife, you know, full of clouds and gates and, you know, winged beings and all this kind of stuff that might be a, a good way for them to, to look at it and, and have some hope that, oh, there's another place where I go because I'm, I kind of already s- sort of exist there partially. Right. You know? I think my higher self has narcolepsy too. I think she's sleeping on the job. I'm not getting the information I need. I'm not catching any balls. <laughs> what if... What if... What if that? What if the the your the consciousness in that other place died? Oh God! <laughs> and now you're just here, just operating. Don't say that. <laughs> Sheesh. So. So yeah. So yeah. Um. So anyway, honey, like, what what do you in in your research? What uh, what do people who want to debunk this? kind of stuff what are the types of things that they say well they say it's because of lack of oxygen to the brain and it's sort of a coping mechanism that we've developed through evolution to you know make us feel euphoric and at peace instead of scared at the moment of death um the tunnel could be caused because the cells in your brain that control your visual cortex are dying and it dies towards the center of your vision. And so that's why you see a tunnel um, or certain, you know, endorphins or whatever are released at the time of death, which can cause euphoric experiences. Right. Things like that. Right. Bunch of BS, if you ask me. <laughs> Bunch of horse, horse pucky. Horse pucky. <laughs> you, you all don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Get off of my land. Um, so I did look into some of this very, very briefly, very cursory look. Um, one of the big, big theories that people came up with was um, DMT. So, because they found that um, DMT for anybody that for, is he a rapper for, for anybody that ain't hip. <laughs> you see that rapper? 
no honey. oh no that's a different guy no honey oh gosh um for anybody that ain't hip <laughs> to the lingity uh dmt is a hallucinogen yeah now it it can be uh, found in uh plants certain plants mushrooms um not mushrooms that's you're thinking of psilocybin oh um, DM, but DMT is found in like the, the, I think there's a, a root that they make ayahuasca out of and all this okay. kind of stuff. And DMT is a very powerful, very, very powerful hallucinogen. Um, it's, it, I've heard some people say it's like 10 times more powerful than a mushroom. Huh. And, um, basically, uh, and I watched a documentary once, um, I wish I could remember off the top of my head what that documentary was called, but they talked about studies, uh, there were very brief studies done that were allowed to be done uh-huh. on the effects of DMT, and, uh, DMT from the people who went through the study, the description that they give is if you, first of all, the one guy put it great, he said, if you don't like roller coasters, don't take DMT. Okay. And they said, the, another person said, it is like they strapped your soul to a rocket ship and shot it out of your body. <laughs> um, it is, wow. when it kicks in, which is fairly quickly, it's almost an immediate shedding of ego. A complete shedding of self. And you are immediately catapulted, like you go out of body, you experience so many of the earmark experiences of a near-death experience. You go out of body, You some people describe going into a light, um, seeing other beings, uh, the machine elves. Um, they... <laughs> I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> Jenny Jenny hates the stories about the machine elves. We'll just have to talk about the machine elves <laughs> on one of these episodes. Yeah, we will. How we'll do, stupid we'll they do, are. I I would I think I think we'll have to even though we'll even need to though talk about them next time. Even though I've never taken hallucinogens, I really want to do uh, uh, just one all about like the realms of uh, inner and outer space that people have seen mm-hmm. uh, when they've taken hallucinogens. Um, but it, it's all kind of the similar stuff, you know, except for like, you know, I didn't, I don't think that anybody had like the stuff where they could tell, name like what people did in another room in the building mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's, it's more of a definite trip experience, but it literally feels like you got downloaded to the other place, you know, whatever that other place is, if that's heaven, if that's, you know, just a, whatever, whatever your conception is. Like, there are people who reported talking to angels, right? Did they describe it as a pleasant experience, or is it... For, it for, sounds for, not, not pleasant. For many people it is, because um, DMT, like, when when they come back, they report um, greater... They, they report very similar kind of personality changes as some of the people that have had near-death experiences. Like, all of a sudden, everything feels lighter, and uh, they feel just, in general, happier, mm-hmm. and they love everybody, and all this kind of stuff. But for some people, just that complete stripping away 
of their ego to all of a sudden go from feeling like an individual person to feeling at one with the universe that quickly for some people is a a horrific experience and they don't Mm. like it and they never want to do it again um now how okay kyle you've now told us about dmt how does this affect near-death experiences well DMT in very small quantities is actually found in the human brain, which I'm very surprised there isn't a horror movie yet about an alien that sucks DMT out of human brains just to get high. (laughs) Right? Well, there's an idea. I think they got close. I think there was one where a guy extracted something out of people's brains and it was like an intergalactic drug, but I don't think it was the DMT. Um... But I'm very surprised nobody kind of has done that specifically. The dark crystal, the Skeksis yeah. kind of do that. And they drain the essence out of the little creatures. Yeah. 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 Just like that. Just like that. So. Uh, <laughs> so Please. Oh, God, Please. don't. You're going to freak out the the eight people that listen to us. <laughs> We're so thankful for the listeners, though. Yes, thank you. We love you. Keep listening. We love Please. you. Oh, jeez. Um, so there's small amounts of DMT found in our brain. Now, here's, the, here's a little bit of a kicker, is uh, scientists don't know why it's there. Um, DMT is a natural biological process... Um, uh, it's when you oxidase adrenaline, I think. Or no, that's something else. It's a byproduct. It's Somehow DMT gets made during um, a, a, a certain bodily function of like your endocrine system or something. And it creates these little small amounts of DMT. The problem is, is when they say, oh yeah, it's just your, your brain floods your brain. Uh, you, you get a, a shot of DMT when you die from your brain and it causes you to hallucinate all this stuff. That's kind of like the go-to kind of currently. Mm-hmm. Is Yeah, you get a little shot of DMT and it, it makes you hallucinate and everybody hallucinates this stuff. Right. Well, number one, why... I'm very interested to know why when people who um, use DMT, they, they, experience, they, they report similar experiences to near-death experiences but each person's experience on dmt is completely different like nobody's reported talking to machine elves you know whatever those are like you know there's some crazy you know people talking about watching their skin peel off (laughs) you know experiencing like as their ego was being stripped away also all the layers of their physical form felt like they were being stripped off their body like Near death experiences don't really include that. Don't really include that kind of stuff. So there's like these trippy elements that if it was DMT, you would expect to hear people reporting like just wild, crazy shit. And, but they don't do that. It's all these very similar kind of slight variations, but very, very similarly constructed experiences. Not only that, but they, some researchers who have attempted to, to study it think that um, the amount of DMT that is in your brain at any given time, even if that were somehow to be like released into your brain all at once, or even if your body somehow sped up the process and was able to try and make a little more 
in the few seconds you have before you die, mm-hmm. they're like, you'd never make enough to have that. You, you, your brain just can't make it in the amounts needed right. to cause that profound of an hallucinatory experience. And again, why wouldn't everyone who dies and is resuscitated have these experiences? Everyone, everyone should be if... tripping out when they come right. back, right? Exactly. So then when you look at um, people who say it's a uh, lack of oxygen, right? Hypoxia. Um, so lack of oxygen. And um, on one of the documentaries that we watched, I heard uh, one of these uh, doctors say this. When you go into hypoxia, because a lot of people say, oh, that's why you see the tunnel vision, the tunneling. That's why you see the tunnel is because when you suffer hypoxia, we know from like Air Force pilots and stuff, um, when your brain starts to lack oxygen, you get tunnel vision, Mm -hmm. which could have some initial causation. But here's the problem. Hypoxia uh, has a tendency to make people fearful and or belligerent so as opposed to the peaceful or relaxed experiences that the people who have the near-death experiences report um and not only that um lack of oxygen would only explain the tunnel vision um so the only reason you would hallucinate is if, and this is a big IF, it were to cause a temporal lobe seizure as you were suffering the hypoxia. That's the only way you would have the hallucinatory experience along with hypoxia. Hypoxia can cause temporal lobe seizures. And so that's the... But but that's the thing. If there's no brain activity, how are you having a temporal lobe seizure? Right. There's no there's no brain function, no brainwave activity. Yeah. So how are you ha- hallucinating from a temporal lobe seizure yeah. when you're brain dead? Right. Horse pucky. Horse pucky. Um, and then the other thing I looked up is some some researchers have tried to point to serotonin, that a large release of serotonin at the time of death may cause uh, the euphoria and hallucinations, which I think they they have found some evidence, some evidence of a serotonin spike. Um, But uh, serotonin, when you get too much serotonin in your brain, it actually causes anxiety, not calm. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing to discount. But it also happens like... And they've seen, they saw this in when they studied these rat brains. You know, they basically killed rats just to study what chemicals were released when they died. And uh, it, it's more likely, uh, I find, because serotonin's actually tied to um, when there's high serotonin in certain parts of the brain, um, it, it's uh, a cause of wakefulness. It actually prevents sleep and prevents REM sleep. So it's actually more likely that your brain is releasing a spike of serotonin because you're trying to wake up. You like you, you know, you're, you've gone unconscious and you know, you don't want to be unconscious. Maybe you don't know you're dying. That's actually a little scarier to me (laughs) is like your brain knows we really need to wake up right now. So it tries to give you a shot of serotonin to, 
pop your eyes back open and get you up and it, it just can't so those were the those were the the major the major oh and um the last one would be endorphins a lot of people try mm -hmm. to say oh it's endorphins endorphin you know i mean crap when i when i was in junior high i knew what endorphins were and that was like you know that's what you said everything like oh my my knee hurts today oh you just gotta wait for your body to release those endorphins dude <laughs> like <laughs> we didn't know what they were we didn't know what they did um but so some pe some experts point to experts i use that loosely point to endorphins <laughs> Um, being released but uh, the thing about it is it's it hasn't been extensively studied um, and endorphins uh, should only really be present if you're experiencing pain or high anxiety right before uh, the the death event you know so it's like for all the people who you know uh, maybe uh, went unconscious first and then died well they weren't high anxiety at that moment they weren't in necessarily in pain at that moment. Right. So why would their body, you know, and, and, you know, like may, okay, maybe somebody was in like a car accident and had like, you know, major bodily injury. And, and here's the thing about all these, they're not able to study most of these because, you know, no hospital is going to let you start poking and prodding people after they've died and been resuscitated you know, and even ones that do, it's like you have to be like super careful and it's not like you can take blood and get readings. You know, this is stuff that would have to somehow be uh, done on animals. And it's not like the animals can tell you if they had a near-death experience, you know. Right. Um, so it's kind of, it's one of these things that it's a little disconcerting that we may never have like an answer, a true answer to whether it's physical or not. But the physical answers that have been put out there, just as a layman, I find highly unlikely. Because when you just go research into them just a little bit, you find that really, well, those substances don't really do what you are trying to tell me it does, or at least not that way. And so now you still don't have an answer for me as to why these would, that people right. would be seeing these things. Now, there was an article that I read last year that I just found, again, um, that uh, there's an elderly patient who was having an MRI done and had a heart attack while he was having the test done. Oh, God, that's got to be horrible. <laughs> I know. A fatal heart attack. As a scientist accidentally captured unique data on the activity in his brain at the very end of his life. During the 30 seconds before and after the man's heart stopped, his brain waves were remarkably similar to those seen during dreaming, memory recall, and meditation, suggesting that people may actually see their life flash before their eyes when they die. And not only that, but confirming that he went into a peaceful state and not a state of high anxiety, mm -hmm. not a state of that, that more than likely he went unconscious first and, you know. It wasn't MRI, it was an EEG. Sorry, he was a 87-year-old Canadian man who developed epilepsy. So he they were performing an EEG um, <laughs> to learn about his seizures, and then he suffered the heart attack. Hey, hey, doc, hey, doc, are you gonna are you gonna fix my my epilepsy there, buddy? <laughs> oh, hey, wait, what's going on? What's going on here? Why you? What's this light? Why are you shining this light in my eyes, doc? 
This ain't right. <laughs> now don't alienate our Canadian listener. Do we have a Canadian listener? I don't. I don't know. I, I don't, love Canada. I don't think so. I need to get my passport so I can go back. <laughs> no, I, I just think I, I think I think what makes it even even a little more humorous is how polite a Canadian would be. Like I know <laughs> what's going on. What's what's up with this light? All right. Well, I guess. All right. You're the doc. I guess you guys know. You guys know what you're doing. Hey, wait. Why am I, doc? Why am I up here? Why am I on this? Did you hook me up to a to a trapeze? Why am I up here, doc? Okay. Well, as long as it fixes my uh, my epilepsy, I'm. I guess I'm okay with it. <laughs> you're the doc. Oh boy. <laughs> Hey, uh, I don't want to be late for the hockey game, guys. <laughs> Grandma, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, golly. Uh, so, <laughs> so do we want to um, do we want to get into uh, stories? Story time. Yes. Let me just check my check my notes here, as you can all hear me flipping more oh, pages. Geez. Yeah, I got lots of notes. There's a really good series on Netflix. Netflix. Called Surviving Death, I think. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Which they were not promoted, were not uh, sponsored by Netflix. Yet. (laughs) But, but yeah, highly recommend. It's really interesting. Hey, if they let me share my password with whoever, they can. I guess they're backing down on that They can sponsor the heck out of us. But uh, they talk about near-death experiences and mediumship and all kinds of things like that. Yeah, a little exploration into what happens after we die. Yeah. Um, do we want to start with the celebrity ones? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, do you have any celebrity ones? I do, sort of. Okay, yes. let's start with your celebrity one. Well, one of my favorite ones and one of the most well-known ones is Sharon Stone. Although... I haven't really found a very like articulate <laughs> version of it. She's talked about it a lot on various gonna, talk shows and things. What are you going to do? Arrest me for dying? <laughs> I love Sharon Stone. <laughs> but uh, she did discuss it with Oprah. And so she uh, suffered a stroke that led to a cerebral hemorrhage in 2001. And she claims that everything happened after the doctors performed an MRI. After the MRI, I was unconscious in the tube, and then when I came out of it and they talked to me, I kind of had that thing. It's sort of like passing out, but you sort of pass up. Um, She says, you have this big blow-up thing. I don't know how to explain it. And I've read that in a few stories where it's like... A feeling of expansion. Yeah, like they feel like they're taking up the whole room, like they're, yeah, they've gotten bigger somehow. Um, she says, just a lot of white light and you see people that have passed on and they talk to you and then you pop right back into your body and you're awake. Um, she says she felt an incredible sense of well-being, um, a sense, and what I like best about what she says is it's a sense that it's just so near. It's not a far away or scary thing. Um, and Oprah says, you mean death? And she says, yes, death, that it's very near and very safe. Um, like it's a breath away. It's just right there. It's not some far away place. Like wherever that dimension just a, is, just a breath away. Just a breath away. <laughs> it's just a like a shot away. <laughs> Rolling Stones, don't worry about it. <laughs> just a kiss away. Anyway. Anyway, but I like that. It's like it. 
like and our loved ones and everything they're just they're right there it's not some far away heaven in outer space but it's just that other dimension that other place it's they, like right here basically they better not be right there all the time oh my gosh <laughs> well yeah that's kind of creepy but you know what i mean i like how she puts it passing passing up the last yeah you pa- last time up. i passed up was saint patrick's day <laughs> <laughs> i passed up about a fifth of guinness <laughs> So she says it's safe and loving and gentle and okay. And there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, I felt so safe and so okay. I felt peaceful, serene, and I felt like either thing will work out. But yet I was really sure that I wanted to be with my son. I think it was a real choice for me. That's why she came back. Um, I had a real journey with this that took me to places both here and beyond that affected me so profoundly that my life will never be the same. I get to not be afraid of dying. This kind of giant vortex of white light was upon me. And I kind of, poof, sort of took off into this glorious, bright, bright white light. And I started to see and be met by some of my friends. But it was very fast. Whoosh. Suddenly I was back. I was in my body. And I was in the room. So, yeah. As, as Jenny says, poop and you're gone. And poop, you're gone. <laughs> I would say poop if I disappeared into a portal in Idaho. Poop. You know, I'm gone. You know what I'd say? Oh, boy. <laughs> Do the quantum leap. <laughs> You'd have to fit that word quantum in there somewhere. Hoping that my next leap would be the leap home. <laughs> so that's Sharon Stone. Lovely lady. Lovely experience. Right. Says to not be afraid of dying. Because it's, it's okay. So should I, should I, yeah, you go. Okay. Mine are fairly (laughs) short. Um, so, uh, Elizabeth Taylor for anybody out there, old, old violet eyes. Um, Elizabeth Taylor in 1961. So this happened, uh, this happened prior to, uh, Cleopatra, I believe in 1961, she was hospitalized with pneumonia and according to her, she was, and I think I think people have actually verified this though. Um, she was pronounced dead four times while at the hospital. Yikes! They kept having to bring her back. Um, at one point, uh, she stopped breathing and was without vitals for uh, over five minutes. Hmm. Um, which actually, uh, just slightly off topic. It actually, uh, the press got hold of the fact that she died before they got word that she was resuscitated. Like, you know, they paid some some nurse or some orderly to give them all the dirt. Mm-hmm. And so the the it was in newspapers, Elizabeth Taylor dead at, oh you know, gosh. whatever age. And here uh, she was alive, wow. recovering in the hospital. Um, but she went, uh, she said she went out of body above herself and then floated into a tunnel with other figures in a place of what she described as sun and warmth. And so then, uh, now at this time, uh, she was, I think, with uh, Eddie Fisher. Um, But she saw her former husband, Mike Todd, who had died in a plane crash three years before. And she said... She wanted to stay with him more than anything in the world and tried to. She asked to stay. And he said to her, it's not your time. And then she came back. Wow. 
So yeah. So she she literally said she's like yeah she saw Mike Todd, and um, and uh, it was one of those things. I th- I think she she had had an affair behind his back, and then they got divorced and everything. And and I think she uh, she seemed to regret it. So when she saw him, she was like, "I want to stay with you," and he was like, "No, you got to go." Wow, that's cool. Yeah, Elizabeth Taylor. Nice. And then we get Cleopatra. Thank goodness. There you go. Do you have another celebrity one? Nope. No? All right, then I'll do... <laughs> uh, we'll move on to Tracy Morgan. Tracy Morgan, for anybody that's been uh, <clears throat> living under a rock, the comedian Tracy Morgan, was in a massive vehicle accident on the New Jersey Turnpike when his limo van was struck by a Walmart tractor trailer. Awful. Um, uh his one of his very very good close friends James McNair lost his life in the accident and Tracy Morgan suffered traumatic brain injury uh, in the accident um, he was as part of his treatment he was put into a medically induced coma and he said while he was in the coma now this is this is a coma experience which um, may be a little on the weaker side of the near-death ex- experience, but there are a lot of these types of stories during comas. Mm-hmm. Um, people leave their bodies. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he says during this coma, he was visited by his father, his father who had died like in 1987, I think. And uh, he said that uh, he, when he saw his father, he openly wept wanted to be with his dad. His dad was his best friend. Um, and his father kept saying to him, I'm not ready for you, son. Hmm. So, and he uh, reports that when he came back, when he came out of the coma and was in recovery, um, he went through a dark period. But he says that that experience of being someplace else and seeing his father uh, has changed his life and he says now i don't have to know you to love you we're supposed to take care of each other that's that's what he got from the experience when he came back he says he now says i love you uh to people he's just met he says he says i love you 200 times a day because that's all he he wants to feel and express in his life now yeah, that's what a lot of people that come back say. The point is just to love, to love everyone and to learn. Earth is like a school to learn how to love. Uh, I love you, man. Earth is just a magic school bus, man. Floating through space, brother. It's beautiful. Life's a garden. Dig it. So you got a, another story for us here? Then these aren't. Were those were that was our last celebrity story. So now we're gonna do just probably a couple, um, just common common person stories. Mm-hmm. The common man experience. Yeah. So man this... on the street. Sorry. Are you done? <laughs> I'm sorry. Shut up. <laughs> okay, so this is one that's featured on the Netflix document or series, I guess. I guess yeah. it's a documentary. It's a documentary um, series. Yeah. Doctor Mary Neal. She's an orthopedic spine surgeon, so a doctor, a medical doctor. In 1999, 
She was kayaking in southern Chile with a group of friends when her kayak was pinned at the bottom of a waterfall. For the next 20 plus minutes, she was trapped underwater. She says, I was not breathing. My torso was absolutely plastered to the front deck of the boat. I could feel my bones breaking. I thought I should be screaming, but I wasn't. I felt no pain, no fear, no panic. I felt more alive than I've ever felt. Which is interesting. Which is also kind of common, too. I've heard that in other ones, that they all mm-hmm. of a sudden... It's like everything everything there is more vibrant. It's like mm-hmm. It's like life on 11. Yeah. When she was pulled from the water, she had been without oxygen for 24 minutes. Um, she was described as blue, waxy, no heartbeat, no breathing, cold to the touch, dead. Um, but after being resuscitated, she miraculously survived the ordeal and tell, told her fellow kayakers that she had been to heaven. She said, I could feel my spirit peeling away from my body and my spirit went up towards the heavens. I was immediately greeted by a group of somethings. I don't know what to call them. People, spirits, beings. I didn't recognize any of them, but they had been important in my life somehow, like a grandparent who died before I was born. They were so overjoyed to welcome me and greet me and love me. She described being led by the beings down a pathway, which was covered with hundreds and, and th- hundreds and thousands of flowers. There was an absolute shift in time and dimension. I experienced all of eternity in every second, and every second expanded into all of eternity. The pathway went to this great dome structure, and I believe I was in heaven. I had an overwhelming sense of being home. At the same time, I could look back at the river where my body was still submerged in the water. Uh, my body was bloated and purple, and I had fixed eyes. There is no doubt in my mind that I was physically dead, but I watched from the entrance to the dome structure as they started CPR, and I could still hear them. I did not want to go back down to my body. I had a very physical sensation of being held and comforted and reassured that everything was fine, but the beings told me that it wasn't my time, that I had more work to do on Earth, and that I had to go back to my body. When I opened my eyes, the guys who resuscitated me were stunned. Um, she was hospitalized for more than a month and had multiple operations. Made a full recovery. Statistically, I had zero chance of surviving without significant brain damage, but I never had any brain damage. So that's a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's very, you know, very reliable, very you know, believable, I think. Yeah. And there were other people there that witnessed she was dead for twenty over 20 minutes. And I think was she was she the one that came back with like weird knowledge too? She came yeah, she, so she came back with a premonition of her son's her son death. Dying. Yeah, so said she actually um, kept it secret from her family for years. She was forewarned that her oldest son would die. Um, and I think she knew he was going to die in a skiing accident because he because he went so... on one skiing trip and she that's when she told him about it. Yeah. And he didn't die on that skiing trip, but then he died later while skiing. Yeah, so I guess she thought that he would die before his 18th birthday or something, and then he made it to that, so she thought, oh, okay, great. But then two years later, when he was 20, he was killed in a, this is a car accident by a distracted driver. Oh, I thought that I thought it was different. I thought he was, mm. I thought he was on a, a trip where he was doing like uh, the the dry land roller skiing. But maybe he died yeah, I think he was hit by a car. Hit by a car. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the ticket. But that's yeah. He was doing this skiing thing. Yeah, but she said they did tell me about the future death of my oldest son. They didn't tell me the date or the time, but it was very clear 
that would be happening. I yeah. woke up every day hoping the plan for my son's life would change. Yeah, she just for some reason felt like it was going to be his 18th birthday. Yeah. But that, that wasn't necessarily information that was conveyed but yeah. it was very clear that he was going to die during one of these skiing trips yeah so very weird very wooey woo yeah that she came back with that uh with that knowledge this one i think is interesting it's just a short one um tony coffee k-o-f-i kofi kofi probably kofi uh at the age of 16, when Tony Kofi was an apprentice builder living in Nottingham, he fell from the third story of a building. Time seemed to slow down massively, and he saw a complex series of images flash before his eyes. As he described it, in my mind's eye, I saw many, many things. Children that I hadn't even had yet. Friends that I had never seen, but are now my friends. The thing that really stuck in my mind was playing an instrument. Then he landed on his head and lost consciousness. When he came to at the hospital, he felt like a different person and didn't want to return to his previous life. Over the following weeks, the images kept flashing back into his mind. He felt that he was being shown something and that the images represented his future. Later, Tony saw a picture of a saxophone and recognized it as the instrument he'd seen himself playing. He used his compensation money from the accident to buy one. Now Tony Kofi is one of the UK's most successful jazz musicians, having won the BBC Jazz Awards twice in 2005 and 2008. Isn't that weird? That is weird. That's like the, the women that, you know, uh, what is it? They get a, a head injury and they wake up and all of a sudden they have a British accent. <laughs> How interesting. <laughs> so I have one from, uh, from our friends in Canada. Uh, Adam Tapp. Adam Tapp, uh, he was a paramedic in London, Ontario, Canada. He was in his shop working with a wood etching uh, tool and the electricity from the tool arced and it electrocuted him uh, his heart stopped for 11 and a half minutes Yikes. so he reports and this this one's a little a little on the odd side he reports waking up in a place that seemingly i'd always been it was black and it kind of seemed like space i wasn't adam I wasn't a paramedic. I wasn't anything. It was just like this raw form of consciousness where I was just existing very happily and pleasantly. He then felt what he described as a frequency wash over him. And he saw what looked like, uh, his description is gasoline on water with all these geometric shapes and patterns. It almost sounds to me like he's describing, like seeing like the pattern of the universe. That hmm. that kind of that he got hit with a frequency, mm-hmm. and he was able to see the pattern of the universe. Something was communicating with thoughts and feelings and emotions, and oh, he describes fading into the fabric of the universe. It actually took him a while. So when he came back, it took him a while to feel comfortable in his body again. Hmm. Um. It took a couple of months, in fact. After he was resuscitated, he was unconscious for only six hours. But he says, for all he knew, it could have been 30 years. That's how expansive the experience was. Hmm. So, that one I thought was kind of cool, kind of crazy. Yeah. I have a weird, crazy one. Yeah. 
Yeah. Let me find it. Well, how about I do uh, one of the uh, other ones I have here while you're looking for that. Okay. So this is a Reddit one. This is from the Near Death Experiences uh, Reddit, which, as we mentioned at the top of this, you might have to, if you go on Reddit or, or some other message board or blog or something, you, you may have to pick through a bunch of them because a lot of people kind of misunderstand what near-death experience means. They think it's, you know, I almost died but didn't. Um, but this one, this one is by uh, uh, someone with the, the screen name Inner Symphony. Uh, it's just titled My NDE. Uh, so they, they start right into the experience. They don't really describe the, the setup. Uh, they said, I felt like I was taking up three quarters of my room, like I was crammed into it, and my soul was too big for where I was standing. I felt like a giant. So very much like Sharon Stone's experience. Then I felt my entire awareness expand into an extra dimension beyond the 3D plane, like my entire mind was consumed by the true depth of what reality is really like. I'd always thought that when someone described the other side as being more real than real, that they meant it felt like 8K resolution while we're living in 4K resolution. That's not the case at all. There's an entirely new depth slash dimension of realness to true reality. The difference is greater than when you compare a 2D image to something three-dimensional. I really can't stress this enough. To compare it to how reality for us on Earth feels like right now, it's like the difference between a dream and being awake. It felt like one would need to qualitatively combine a thousand Earth realities to match the depth of realness that the other place has. It's like we're on Earth having inserted ourselves into Sims characters or dolls in a dollhouse to play. Everything on Earth looks plastic and fake to me since that day. I instantly felt the most intense love and life feeling, if the word life had an, an essence, and that was completely unimaginable and that words cannot describe. The love I felt was so intense that I could physically feel it throughout my soul body and I instantly recalled, recoiled in horror at the realization that all of my suffering on earth was meaningless and that true reality is nothing but love and life. There was a soul song that had a depth dimension to it that no audio or song on earth has or could ever compare to. It was like the hum of millions of voices, each talking distinctly and individually, but together in a wholeness to create a single sound that vibrated my very being and imbued the very essence of the words life and love into my soul. The atmosphere was like the lively chatter of a tropical rainforest if the density were multiplied by millions of times. It was so beautiful and felt so good that I was crying the whole time. The feeling is so distinct and unique that trying to explain this to you is like trying to explain what it's like to see someone who's been... To, uh, I'm sorry. Like trying to explain what it's like to see to someone who's been blind since birth. You really can't understand, even if I tell you, it's not just a sixth sense. You are literally incapable of imagining what it's like, even if I explain for thousands of pages. It's just so naturally unfathomable to the human mind. I never could have imagined such a feeling if I was given all the time in the world to contemplate. 
Neither can you. My mind felt faster and more intelligent than the fastest of the world's supercomputers combined and multiplied. I've left out some of the experience and realizations, but I may be able to answer some questions. And then they go on to answer uh, a few questions. And a couple of these are, I, th I found kind of interesting, the, the questions and answers. <clears throat> How are you doing with your return? Um, this person says, I think it's pretty difficult to come back. There must be a pretty important reason you came back. So thank you, even if you don't know what it is. And they say, the return's been difficult, knowing that all of our suffering is meaningless, however temporary. I mentioned in a comment further down why I decided to come back. And um, when, when asked about uh, coming back, they say, I chose to come back for certain reasons. Among those reasons was that I was starting to remember who I was as a soul and what we are, but didn't feel ready to remember that and greatly didn't want to. So basically they were, they felt like they were starting to lose their individuality, like their sense of them as the person they were on earth. Mm -hmm. And they didn't like that feeling and, and didn't want to continue it. Um, there was a huge reluctance to give up this earth self that made me turn back, though that part was entirely optional. No one is forced to remember anything or to become their higher version of themselves again. You can also simply choose not to go there if you wanted. Um, so they're saying that they weren't they weren't being forced to do that, but they just they felt that slipping away, and they were starting to become just the them as a soul. Does that mean you become a ghost if you don't? Go back to your higher self. Maybe that's why they're Maybe ghosts. That's, they don't. Ooh. That would be a great answer. Ooh. That would be a great answer. So cool. yeah. So I mean, they they go on a little bit uh, to the extreme on the just how unfathomable everything is, but I think it's very interesting that entire description that they give of just the. The, that that sense of that like they they describe it as being in 8k resolution whereas here is in 4k that you right. know and talking about they come when they came back everything looks so fake and plastic to them nothing looks as real as that place um so i thought i thought that was fair that's why i picked that one because i thought that was a super interesting yeah. observation on that that like they came back and it, it just feels so so drab and fake here like that they've been to a place that's like so hyper real that this can't even compare right being here hmm. you know so cool so did you, did you find the other one you wanted to i did to do? so highly recommend checking out nderf.org it's n-d-e-r-f the nat i'm sorry the near-death experience research foundation and they have Tons and tons of stories, archives. You can search for different, you know, words or topics. Um, they have different, like, articles and blogs explaining various aspects of NDEs. And so, yeah, it's a great resource if you just want to read, you know, near-death experience stories. And then the nice thing, too, is they have the people submit their stories, and then they have to answer a whole list of questions, like, tons of questions. Um... At the time of your experience, was there an associated life-threatening event? Um, did you feel separated from your body? And then, you know, were you 
raised, you know, how what importance did you place on your religious spiritual life prior to your experience? You know, did things change after your experience? Uh, did you gain special knowledge or information about your purpose or about, the, you know, the meaning of life? So it's really neat because you get a lot more detail from the people who experienced it. And this one would be considered a negative experience, which um, the national, or I keep saying national, N is for near, near death experience <laughs> research foundation, Enderf says that probably 2% of their stories are negative. The vast, vast majority are positive, And a lot of the negative ones, you know, people maybe had lower levels of consciousness. So maybe that's why they didn't fully experience all of the good feelings or something. Just like, just like when you go to the faith healer to get healed, if you didn't have enough faith. That's right. You know, you don't get as much healing, buddy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, this is Wilson's experience. And um, he says it was very frightening and traumatic. And it's a bit of a long read. So oh boy. strap in. So on the 15th of July, 2013, at about 7.45 a.m., I was on my way to work and approaching the intersection and getting ready to take a left-hand turn. This is a notoriously dangerous intersection on any day, and there have been many accidents there. It is hard to see if the intersection is clear from the right, and the left turn is particularly hazardous. I was running late and in a flustered state of mind. I had an important meeting that I'd been planning for carefully over a number of days, and a really stupid delay at the last minute put all of that in jeopardy. It should also be understood that a much better traffic signal system exists there today than was in place at the time of this incident. I approached the intersection in a hurry. I looked to the right and believed that I had correctly viewed that nothing was approaching from the right, so I made the left turn. As I crossed the intersection, I glanced right once more and saw a vehicle heading straight for me at what could only have been in excess of 90 miles per hour. We saw each other. I saw the look in the other guy's eyes because we were that close. A collision was absolutely inevitable. There is no way on this earth that it could have been avoided. What happens next is extremely difficult to describe, but I will do my best. And this can be and must be taken to apply to everything that I'm going to attempt to relate from this point onwards. Words, even the most carefully chosen words, capture no more than 1% of this experience at best, and even then very poorly. This is quite possibly the most frustrating thing about giving this account. Across from the front of the car on the left, in, an al in almost the opposite direction to the oncoming vehicle, was a field. I suddenly became aware of a very large object approaching slowly on a diagonal across the field. It was coming directly towards my car. Time was not functioning normally while this was happening, if it was functioning at all. I had the space to notice this happening, but I can't explain how I was able to do that. The object, when I first saw it, appeared to be about the size of a ten-floor tower block. It subjectively seemed to be about two or three hundred yards across the field. These size and distance descriptions are meaningless, as I'll try to explain in a moment. The object resembled a giant water wheel lying on its side and rotating as it approached me and my vehicle. As it got closer, this didn't take time as we understand it. I saw that my first observation about its size was wildly inaccurate. It was more like the size of a small city. As it got closer still, I understood that all scale and distance estimates were meaningless. It was larger than what we think of as the world. As it approached me, I became aware of its power and significance. My mind interpreted this as being an up-close, giant-scale physical object. Okay, now this part is particularly difficult to explain. As the object drew near to me, a kind of sensation came over my person, and I knew exactly what this thing was. Not only that, but I knew 
everything that pertained to it, what it was, what it was doing, what its business was with me, where and when I had seen it before, why I was seeing it now, and many, many other things that I cannot now recall. I had seen this object before I was born and will see it again when I die. We all knew it before we were born. We will all see it when we die. But this information is eclipsed from us while we are alive. And that was why I was seeing it now in the experience because I was in the process of dying in a fatal car crash. Here's what I can remember as best as words can tell. This wheel wasn't something that moved toward me through the world or through reality somehow. That was an illusion that my senses were constructing for me. The wheel was reality itself. It represented every conceivable possibility for a life or for a world that could ever be envisioned or imagined. As it approached, I became aware that what we call our world was contained within it. It was simply one of the numberless slots or paddles in the water wheel. It had always been so. My life, your life, our world, all of us. We were a part of this wheel structure, and we had always been a part of this structure. It simply now made itself visible to me. There then began the truly terrifying dimension of this experience. Words cannot even begin to describe the level of fear I experienced. The water wheel sort of rolled across me and then across the place where my car was in the road. As it did so, I began to be hit by each of the paddles in the wheel. Remember that all of this is just a way of talking. It does not and cannot remotely describe the real situation as it actually was. But some sense of it can be had by imagining that in the space of each paddle, there was a kind of spinning film of water, like a waterfall on its side. Imagine a film of water being thrown outward from the wheel in each slot, as if by centrifugal force. Imagine being slapped or splashed by each of these films as you collide with it and pass through it to the next one. This is what was happening. Except these weren't just films of water. They were, for want of a better term, possible realities or what we might think of as universes or worlds. Again, our world, our entire universe as we normally think of it, was simply one among an infinite number of these. How did I know that there was an infinite number? I just did. A kind of knowing came with the event, and there was no doubting this knowing. It was so, and I knew it was so. And because I had knowledge and understood what was happening in ways I can no longer communicate, I was afraid. I understood that I was about to be subject to the process that humans approximated with the term reincarnation. This was why the wheel had come. I represented a kind of discrepancy that had to be fixed. The event, or perhaps the imminent event, on the highway had caused me to slip out of or fall between the paddles on the wheel. The structure had some kind of cosmic purpose of sorting things into their correct natural place. I was afraid and resisted being sorted, so the wheel step, stepped up its aggressive attempts to sort me correctly. With this came another understanding that frightened me even more. I knew that unless I soon selected one of these realities to slide back into, that the wheel would coerce the situation by deciding for me. One way or another, I would be sorted, whether I liked it or not. If I didn't choose for myself, I would simply be fitted into place at some nearest position on the wheel to the point where I failed to make the decision, if that makes sense. I was aware of having a limited ability to choose, but not much. Even that limited ability wasn't much use because each reality slammed against me and threw me before I could make much sense of what it contained. Even I did not remain the same from one slot in the wheel to the next. It was as if, when each film broke over me, I was destroyed and made again from the ground up as a completely new self. There was no continuous me that traveled unaltered through that wheel and can somehow report back on this experience. This is just one of the many things that is so very hard to explain. The very idea of a continuous self was contradicted by this experience. So he be, says, I began to grow extremely panicked. Each time I thought I was just beginning to get a handle on things, I would be slapped over violently and ruthlessly into a new slot in the wheel and a whole new me would crystallize along with all the memories and assumptions that went along with that world. 
I remembered none of who I was just a moment ago and another paddle on the wheel. I had no memory whatsoever of where I'd come from or the highway situation in my world. I had zero memory of that world. I know I'd come from a somewhere, but had no recollection of where that was or even who I was. I seemed to understand intuitively that if I went into any of these, I would be there for only a few moments or minutes at most, and then I would have to come out and face the wheel again almost immediately. Uh, I found myself back on the highway in what seemed to be a very short distance back up the road, still approaching the intersection. This is just one of the many mysteries associated with the event that I cannot explain. Did I choose a world which was a version of our universe in which the accident hadn't quite happened yet, but was just seconds away from happening? I can't say because I have no memory of making that decision. I remember the look on that driver's face as clearly as if it were yesterday. I remember him bracing back on the wheel, but I braked as I reached the intersection, and that driver or his car were simply nowhere to be seen. That's that's weird. Right. That's weird. Now, would we would we consider that a real near death experience? Well, so it's classified as an <clears throat> FDE. What is an F? Let me see. False death. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider that a, a well, classic near-death experience. In our, well, it's kind, of, it was, it's kind of like a glitch in the matrix, but also, if in that one reality, um, he did die in that car crash, that was inevitable. Then this happened, and then he got reincarnated into another alternate reality or something. But then how does he remember? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Fear death experience. That sounds fake. (laughs) What is an FDE? Full desk encryption. No, that's not it. All right. Well... (laughs) Let's let's move on to our. I think this is going to be our final our final story. Okay. Um, and so I figured, you know, we kept finding ones. You know, uh, they they do say, like you said, that they say only about two percent of reported near death experiences are are negative. Um, there are some people. I did see a couple small uh, article pieces where they um, kind of questioned that. They wondered if. Um, if it was really that low or if it, is it just possible that people who have negative near death experiences choose not to talk about them because they're so upsetting. And so they don't report them. And not only that, but they don't, they're not even sure that everyone that has a near death experience even talks about it or reports it. So, so the numbers could be, you know, off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I was thinking to myself when I was going through all the literature and everything. Well, we we between Jenny and I, we had kind of like just not discussed, but just mentioned. Oh, I found this interesting one. I found that interesting one, but we didn't have any that, are, that were negative. Uh, we didn't. I didn't. I wasn't finding any. You know, so many of these sites kind of do choose to only show yeah. you the nice stuff. A lot of the negative ones are. They talk about the void. And some of the ones with the void are positive. It's just they end there. Instead of seeing a bright light, they're in a completely black, dark space. But for the most part, they still feel that 
you know, enveloping feeling right. of love. And then eventually a light appears. But and, some of the negative ones, they're in this void and it's cold and dark and lonely and scary. Yeah. And you have to watch too, because I know a few of the ones that I uh, looked at that, that I found that were negative, but I chose not to um, include. It was because it was kind of obvious that the person telling the story had a very specific point of view mm-hmm. that was that that this story served in some way they went to hell yeah they went to they it, saw it, the devil not not to not to knock uh evangelicals there, there's mm-hmm. a lot of good evangelicals out there but for whatever reason the ones that talk about having near-death experiences where they go to hell for some reason it's always strictly in some kind of strange service to like them proselytizing their faith mm-hmm. in some way. And so it, it just has a feeling of, oh, I think they're making this up. Yeah. I think this is a made up story just so that they can offer this up. But, and the one that I'm going to tell <laughs> is definitely one of those. <laughs> awesome. But it was so crazy out there. <laughs> And funny that I had to tell it. All right. So of all the, of any of the negative ones that I was going to find, this <laughs> jumped out and was like, Kyle, you have to tell. That It was like, it was like, it was like God came to me and said, <laughs> Kyle, you need to tell his story. Oh, Lord. So there is uh, a man in Michigan named Gerald Johnson. Now he is a, uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention the church. I don't really want to promote uh, a, a church organization uh, on the show. Um, but he, he posits himself as a priest. But I can at least guarantee you this is not a Catholic church. <laughs> this is some kind of evangelical congregation in Michigan. Um, and Gerald Johnson is a self-described priest of this, uh, this organization. So he says back in February of 2016, Gerald Johnson says that he had a heart attack and he died and he went to hell. He says that he believed when he had the heart attack and he collapsed over dead, he was sure he was going up. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. Nope. Uh in a big surprise to old uh, Jerry Johnson, he got sucked straight down to the other place. Oh, um, but he, he said he thought that because, you know, he was this man of faith uh, and and he did good works in his life um, and he made all these what he describes as godly decisions with his life, he was sure he was going to heaven. But he, uh, he got sucked straight down to the center of the earth because that is where hell is. It is in the center of the <laughs> sure earth. Sure is. And, and he is sure of it. And he, he says, well, because there's scriptures that say so. Right. Um, so when he got there, he didn't go into... Um, he probably has... This is, uh, you can find... If you really wanted to look this guy up, you can find him on video. He's on YouTube, TikTok. Um, where he describes some of this stuff. And I think he's t- supposedly talked about this before. But in the particular video that I watched, uh, he describes just a little bit, just a snippet, just a little, a little peek into what he saw when he got to hell. He says he saw a man 
walking on all fours like a dog. And this man was burned from head to tippy toe. Um, and see, that's what I don't get. Like, what head to and to what tippy toe? He doesn't have a body because he's dead. Well, so so <laughs> he's he's burned from head to toe, walking around on all fours, and he says it gets worse. So uh, his eyes were bulging out, like he was you know under great pain or or uh, duress, and he had chains around his neck. And the chains formed like a like a were like a collar, like a leash, like he was a hellhound, and there was a demon walking him, like a dog. Hmm. And he says that he was shown these things telepathic, like that there was telepathic communication that happened in the spirit, and that he was told that this demon had tormented this man while he was alive on earth that this demon had attached itself to him when this man was young and and rode him his whole life causing him to make all these horrible uh do all these horrible deeds and make horrible decisions and and just just uh, uh made his life a travesty and that because you know whispering in his ear tempting him the entire time that's right lucy whispering in his ear just like that and caused him to do all these horrible things and so it ended up getting his soul cast into hell and so now in hell this man is this demon's uh slave this demon's dog boy do you think demons get bored with this shit like if i was a demon i'd be like i'm sick of this guy it's been a thousand years i have to walk him around like he's a dog i just want to like Go to Bora Bora or something and lay on the beach. Well, but I mean, if you think about it, honey, it's like um, you remember back in the 80s, like the like in uh, Beverly Hills Cop, he sees the woman walking a lion down the street, right? It's like a status symbol. It's like, hey, this is really this is my guy. Oh, look, I got some shitty human. Ooh. This is my guy. This is Dave. Mm. Da- this, this is Dave. Yeah, I, I I did a lot of work training Dave, you know, it's, it's like a, it might be a status symbol, but it gets better. In hell, he heard music playing. Um, it was a little ways off. He, he, he moved to get closer, and there was music playing. And can you take a guess as to the music that he heard? What do you, what do you think you would hear in hell? Um, what, what music? Country music. <laughs> country music. Except Dolly. No, um, he heard uh, Rihanna's song "Umbrella." What playing? That's a great song. And he heard "Don't Worry, Be Happy" by Bobby McFerrin. What? <laughs> and what? he said, "Wait, what?" <laughs> he said that they were playing "Umbrella, Umbrella." And now, were they playing them at the same time? Because that could maybe drive you no, crazy. No, no, no. <laughs> Some people were being forced to listen to "Umbrella" oh, okay. by Rihanna, and other people were being forced to listen to "Don't Worry, Be Happy Now." And uh, the demons. Now, uh, he believes that this this is his belief is that demons, and he I think he claims he was possibly also telepathically communicated this, but he believes that. Uh, that music um, 
is demon-inspired, that popular music is demon-inspired in the first place to control humanity in some way. Rihanna's part of the Illuminati, too. And, well, sure. Sure she is. Um, but the, And that this is because if it's not a gospel song, if, it, if it's a gospel song, mm. that's mm. okay. But anything that's not a gospel song has been inspired by a demon Obviously. in an attempt to apply control over humanity in some way. And um, so in hell, when you get to hell, they play the demon-inspired music that you would have heard on Earth. And they do this to... Rihanna and Bobby McFerrin? It's to torture people. They play it over and over and over again and force you to listen to Umbrella. I could see if it was don't like... don't worry, be happy now. Boom-bop or Over and over and over again to torture you. Um, that's, 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 Spooky. Now, he, now, see, I thought, like, I mean, Akadaka, ACDC, you know, I mean, that's like the go-to. I, I thought, don't get us copyright straight, honey. I thought that that would be the obvious thing. Black Sabbath, you know, maybe a little Led Zeppelin or, you know, something. I thought maybe, you know. But no, he says it's don't worry, be happy now. Um, now, he believes that he went there, that he got sent... Uh, stop it. <laughs> he believes that he got sent there because uh, even though he did all these good works and he made what he considered godly decisions, he believes that he went there because he lacked forgiveness in his heart and he was full of judgment. And uh, and so that's that was God trying to tell him, hey, you're you're full of judgment, and you he know. He still seems a little judgy, if you ask me, towards uh, popular music, at least. Yeah, yeah, probably. That. What did Bobby McFerrin ever do to him? I don't know. I don't know. It's something. But so, you know, and and I guess we can probably end off with like if you if you get to hear any kind of music in the afterlife when you die, I know what I want to hear. I want to hear some like Brian May from Queen like licks. Like I when I get to the pearly gates, I want to I want Brian May with like a couple of Marshall stacks there, you know, like playing like his best solos, you know, because when I hear like Brian May's guitar that's what I think heaven sounds like, you know. So if there if there is any kind of afterlife, if there's a a good place that I get to go to, I want to hear Brian May playing me in, you know. So what do you what 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 do you think? What is afterlife music to you? Lucy? Shut up! Oh my gosh! So rude. So if you get to hear music in the afterlife, what what would be like your what do you think your music would be that you would want to hear? John Denver. You think John Denver would be playing? Like sunshine on my shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so that uh, you know, that that's an amazing uh, story of a trip to hell uh, that I thought that <laughs> people had to hear about because mm-hmm. I mean, hey, first of all. Don't let that demon, you know, ride you so long you become a tellhound on the other side. And, and, you know, stop listening. demons need to get a life. Stop listening to Rihanna and Bobby McFerrin because they're they're just 
their gateway, their gateways to the infernal realms. Demons need to get a real job. <laughs> just leave people alone. That's lame. Well, and you know, I made it, him do drugs. Ooh. And it, well, it's and and it's kind of such a such a you know, uh, it, it's sort of like it's it becomes so cartoonish when you think about yeah. like the way people in their minds depict depict how i'm not going to sit here and claim that i know what the afterlife is going to bring um but the you know the idea like that you know it, it's it's these weird little you know odd tortures and stuff like stuff out of a out of a horror movie you know to 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 my mind like if you believe that the devil exists if you believe lucifer exists and you believe he's like the most devious and cunning of all beings in the entire universe. Like, I mean, I would expect you'd get to hell and like some guys, it would be just like constant like coffee with their mother. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it does, like why, like these ideas that it's lakes of fire yeah. and, and all these conceptions that, that, um, you know, work their way in, you know, during, from ancient times and stuff like that, you know, um, and, and these melding of cultural ideas that kind of produce this idea that we have of heaven or hell. It's like, you know, for some people, hell might be never able to like get that little hangnail and you keep catching it on your pants. <laughs> like that might just be like absolute mental torture to them. And I would think that, you know, trapping people in like cycles of misery would be more hellish. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, to me, I feel like the void and being separated from that source or that light is the worst thing. So yeah. maybe that's what it is. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So, but hey, we might get a chance to find out what uh we might be able to get some direct connection to that life on the other side uh because we'd like to make a small announcement coming up here at the end of the month um probably like the 27th the show that would come out on like the 27th of february um we are going to have a special guest come on it's a guy that i knew in high school a fellow by the name of ethan k and he is a psychic medium and he's going to come on and talk about his experiences with mediumship, with the <laughs> with the afterlife, with the supernatural. Are we boring you, George? And he's going to, you know, discuss uh, experiences he's had during seances. I think George is actually dreaming of uh, a hellish place where they play <laughs> nothing but Rihanna. Um but he's going to come on the show and and talk a little bit. He's got a podcast of his own. Um, uh, I don't think it deals with psychic mediumship, but he's going to come on and talk with us about his experiences with the other side. It's and be awesome. Yeah, I think it's going to be kind Can't of fun. Wait. I haven't talked to the guy in uh, forever and a day. Um, so I think it's going to be really, really cool. So we have that to look forward to. Um, I think our next episode, I think, you know, we went for near death and it was a little more serious on this one. We've had a couple of serious ones. I'd really like to, if you're okay with it, honey, I'd like to get into sky beasts on the next episode. All right. All right. We're going to talk about crazy creatures in the skies, flying over the skies of the United States and possibly around the world. Um, and that's uh, some crazy stuff. We're going to talk about the Crawfordsville monster. 
um, and uh, it's going to be tons of fun. I'm excited about it. Sounds good. So, anything else for the good of the order, honey? No, just uh, definitely, you know, check out enderf.org, N-D-E-R-F. Yeah, and, and if anybody out there ha- has had, after listening to this uh, pod, not because of this pod, don't have a near-death experience yes, because yes, of this podcast. Don't. Although, if you do, please come back to your body <laughs> and tell us about it. But anybody out there that, that's had anything uh, similar, any kind of experiences, um, or even afterlife experiences... Any kind of experience that pushes the boundaries of our reality as we know it, we would love to hear from you. We would love to have you write to us at liminalunlimited at gmail.com. We also have our Facebook page, the Liminal Unlimited Podcast page. We also have our Twitter, uh, Limit Unlimited, the Liminal Unlimited Podcast Twitter. Um, You can contact us on any of those resources. We would love to hear from you and love to get your stories or if you have thoughts or ideas about future episodes. And if anybody knows where you can get a pug's nose fixed so that she doesn't snore through the entire episode, Aww. we would love to hear that too. She's but anyway. adorable. Hi, <laughs> We thank you guys so much uh, for listening. Um, we do see the... the uh, I get, I get uh, metrics on the listeners, and we see listeners from uh, all over the world... Um, stopping in and listening to our episodes and we really appreciate uh, the listens we're doing this we we're we're not getting paid for this right now we we're doing this just for fun um, and we want to talk about weird stuff with you guys so let us know all right so until next time we will see you on the other side thanks everybody good night bye goodbye